1: Three individual case studies where families lost people, but at that very early stage of the pandemic, until kind of late March, early April.
2: Okay.
1: Yeah. I mean, imagine being told that you know, minister, there's a virus on its way, and it's likely that tens of thousands of people could die.
2: From the news team at Virgin Media Ireland, this is Room Six Three One, Ireland's COVID crisis. I'm reporter Zara King. This six-part podcast series contains the unheard tapes from the Virgin Media News documentary team. These episodes come from hours of footage taken during the making of our documentary Ireland Under Lockdown. Throughout the series we'll hear the thoughts of key decision makers who sat inside the walls of room 631 at the Department of Health and the voices of the people whose lives were changed by those decisions as a global crisis unfolded
1: in their homes. Okay, Rose, well, you're
2: happy. Covered. Obviously, you're ignoring the camera.
1: No problem. I, I, I never, I will never forget Dr Tony Hula and others briefing me uh, and Leo as Taoiseach at the time about the potential impact in terms of death and illness in our country. I mean, hearing figures that ran to tens of thousands. I mean, imagine being told that, you know, Minister, there's a virus on its way and it's likely that tens of thousands of people could die in our country and there's no vaccine Mm. there's no effective treatment and we don't know a huge amount about it yet and you know being in a department where plans were being made to expand mortuary facilities set up field hospitals taking over hotels like city west i remember standing out there in city west can't all the days run into one. But I remember standing out there in City West in, you know, the big, the big, massive conference hall where you know someone like me'd usually be there for a party, conference, or an exhibition, or to give a speech. And you know, this place being turned into what would effectively have been our field hospital. And I remember, on the one hand, thinking, "Wow, fair play to the HSE for getting this ready and being so organised And then on the other hand, I remember leaving, um, and getting back in my car and just feeling so uneasy the idea that this could be a reality, that shortly this facility could be full of very, very, very sick people from a virus that um, we were still learning so much about. Now, thankfully, for all the reasons that we know, um, that didn't come to pass. And
2: it was such a daunting prospect for all of us, but for you as the health minister, were you frightened at any point?
1: Yeah, I was really worried. Um, I, I was very, very assured that we were in good hands. I mean, Dr. Tony Hood and much commentary about the man. His demeanour, his sense of calm, his sense of authority, and um, his assertiveness, um, was something that was hugely reassuring to me um, as health minister. But I, but I was, I was very worried because people were asking questions and people were seeking assurances that I was not able to give them. So you know, I, I mean, that, that, and it's that sense of powerlessness. So. We couldn't stop the virus coming. We couldn't cure the virus. Um, we couldn't buy a medicine to make people better. So what could we do? Um, we could try and alter people's behavior. We could try and teach each other how to live safely. We could try and teach each other the things to do um, to keep ourselves and our families and our loved ones safe. And that's really what we put all our energy into. And I'll, I'll, I'll always be grateful, and I think we should always be grateful as a country to the fact that Tony Neffish the HSE, everybody got on board with that. Um, you know, so, so instead of feeling powerlessness, we started to focus very, very quickly on what could we do and, and trying to communicate with people in a very honest way. So actually saying, as I would have had to say to you on many occasions, we don't know the answer to that question, um, but here's what we do know. And I think that was important because I, I remember Tony saying to me at the start, the communications during a public health emergency becomes vital. And it really did, because if there had been a moment in time where the Irish public had have stopped listening, stopped listening to Dr Hula and stopped listening to the Department of Health, stopped listening to me, it would have been almost impossible to get out the messages that we needed to get out to save lives.
2: So that was the preliminary stage and we could see it coming. And then eventually, the 29th of February, we have our first confirmed case. Talk us through that day for you, what were you doing, how did you find out, give us a sort of So a, a this round. was a
1: Saturday I think, because I remember being at home and I remember, sitting, I remember sitting on my couch, I think I was home alone, and I remember my phone ringing and I just looked at it, oh, Tony Hoolan, and it was, I'm going to guess, three, half three on a Saturday afternoon, sometime around then. And, you know, I, I didn't think Tony was ringing to see he was having a nice weekend um, at half three on a Saturday so I obviously immediately answered his call and uh, he said, uh, I'll never forget he said, uh, Minister you know what I'm ringing about don't you? And I said yeah and uh, he then obviously briefed me on the situation that we now had our, our first confirmed case. Of course before that we'd had the case in the north that had come through Dublin um, but the, but at that stage we'd, we'd had our first confirmed case and it's actually fascinating if you, if you think about all of the I say this respectfully, but if you think about all of the media questions and the public questions, I were, "Where is it? Who has it? Are they a man? Are they a woman? Are they forty? Where do they live? You know, did I meet them?" Because we were talking about a single case, and then for the next number of days, we were talking about more single cases. Um, and if you think of that now in the context of so many tens of thousands of cases Um, and 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 I remember Tony it was very it was a difficult time actually because everybody wanted to know who has it you know where do they live do they live near me is it a man or a woman and we obviously couldn't reveal that because we had to protect the identity of the person at the end of the day they have a a right to have their medical information protected between them and their doctor Um, and at this and secondly we needed people to continue to come forward you didn't want to have a, a frenzy around every time somebody got COVID because that would have actually meant that if I had a symptom, I wouldn't have come forward for a test.
2: And when you got that news, were you shocked or were you somewhat relieved that all the preparation, it, like almost the anticipation, some said of it coming was nearly more of an anxious time that when it arrived, there was a bizarre relief to it.
1: Yeah, I suppose. I was still shocked because I mean shocked was kind of a stupid way to be but you know because I was always going to come here like there was an inevitability about its arrival and um, and you're right there was this massive kind of build up to its arrival where day in day out we were trying to tell people about Covid 19 it's coming to Ireland it's very dangerous here's what you need to do but there hadn't been any cases and um, but still you know when it actually happens uh, when you hear th- this is real now it's here and considering we knew that once we got one case we were going to get many cases and you got to remember at that time I was seeing projections um, that were very dire, um, very very dire in terms of how many people could have gotten sick and how many people would have lost their lives and of course sadly, sadly there was lots of tragedy and lots of pain in Ireland um, and every single loss was devastating but I can only tell you that the level of death um, that we could have seen in our country at that stage based on the projections was just so high it was it was almost impossible to comprehend.
2: And it was those first sort of two, three weeks where a lot of big decisions were made. Um, our lives changed in those first two to three weeks. What we knew as a normal life had completely changed. Um, do you remember the conversations that were happening once we realised first case was in contingency planning, what would we do next? Can you talk us through some of the conversations that were happening at a government and at a health level? Yeah,
1: so I mean, I mean the first conversation was about, was about capacity. And again, as we've talked about, there'd been a lot of work done already in the background to build up that capacity but the first conversation was to make sure we had all of the resources that we needed to absolutely maximize capacity. And look all of this went on as you know for, for days and weeks and really I suppose it culminated in that meeting in March um, of NPHET, um that went on through the night um, and I remember being briefed by, by Tony Houlihan and other members of NPHET, uh in the big meeting room in the Department of Health in the early hours of I don't know what morning Tuesday or Wednesday morning of that week um, the Taoiseach was in Washington. Um, so Simon Coveney was the then He I rang him, he came over to the Department of Health with me, and uh, we sat there in that big that big meeting room up on the sixth floor in Museum Plaza, waiting, um, literally waiting, <laughs> for the Neffydd meeting to finish. And it was, a, it was then we were told um, by Tony and others that um, tomorrow, not in a couple of days' time, tomorrow, these things needed to happen, which effectively amounted to the start of the lockdown of our country. And uh, I mean, you know, two, maybe two, half two in the morning, leaving the Department of Health back into government buildings, I'm not sure, six, seven in the morning, um, to get ready for the Taoiseach, who again is in a different time zone (laughs) in Washington, to make an address to the people of our country, um, to be then followed by a cabinet meeting and all to happen in in jig time. it's even even talking about it now it's hard it's hard to actually believe how how quickly these things happened you know that we had gone from a stage of me sitting on my couch that saturday getting the call from tony saying you know what i'm bringing you about there's a case here to sitting in the department of health in the early hours of a march morning getting ready to shut down our country and i remember looking at and i remember saying it to my my team when, you, when you're in the Department of Health it's, it's as you know better than most because you, you nearly live there when, when, when you're when you, in the Department of Health it's all glass so you can look out and you can see out very far and I'll always remember looking out of that meeting room that night and seeing all the lights in the distance and thinking they're people's homes and they're in bed and they're asleep and they don't know that we're sitting in this room deciding tomorrow um, that we're closing their business, that they're not going to be able to go back to work that the kids aren't going to be able to go to school but we're doing it um, to save lives, and I just thought of oh yeah, I, ca- I always remember looking out at all those lights um, and thinking, how are we going to, how are we going to tell people this tomorrow?
2: Because it changed all of our lives. It was it was the moment that changed our lives in so many ways, wasn't it? It did. <laughs> Dr. Houlin talks about how that was that meeting and that was the closing down the schools and then he he talks about how they had to go back to the well a couple of days later. So you see him coming back a few days later to ask you to tighten things up
1: again. Um, Twice in that week, we had very significant effort recommendations, so the all-night meeting that went into the early hours, that effectively was the beginning of lockdown, starting with the schools. And then very quickly they decided, and I think this was right, um, like within 24 or 48 hours, this, this in and of itself wasn't going to be enough. And that Friday night, I remember standing in the government press centre with the Taoiseach and Tony. And that Friday night, effectively, the lockdown was in. It. But you know what? I, I keep thinking about this in recent weeks. At that time, all of us, myself included, thought we were signing up for a lockdown of a number of weeks. And and I and I, and I remember... And I wondered, did that help us as a people? I mean, I wondered, is that what helped us actually, you know, that we... I don't know about you, but I can think in, in weeks. <laughs> how are we going to get through the next couple of weeks? Um, I wonder if we had to told people in March, we'd still be talking about COVID in December. <sighs> you know, I'm not sure how we would have brought people with us, so I actually think, you know, it was based on the best information available, but we were asking people to sign up for a number of weeks. I remember being I remember being told then, at the end of that period by Tony Hoolin, um I remember having an initial conversation with him in the canteen in the Department of Health where he kind of broke it to me gently (laughs) that, you know, Minister, we're we're, we're not going to be lifting these restrictions. We're going to need them for longer. And I remember being worried at that moment in time um, because we'd asked people to sign up to. I mean, restrictions without parallel, restrictions that none of us could comprehend, restrictions that you'd never wish to impose on people in your own country except in the most emergency situation, we'd ask them to sign up for a couple of weeks and now we were going to have to go back and say, about that, um, we need to go at this for a bit longer. And I remember wondering how people were going to respond to that.
2: How quiet the streets were during that time. Because even, I remember leaving the department every evening thinking, never going to get used to how eerily quiet it is. A car wouldn't pass. You wouldn't see a bird in the street. Like, there was nothing
1: It was so quiet and I used to remember walking pretty regularly from my department to government buildings and often doing interviews outside government buildings and it was, just, it was just a deathly silence I mean it would be you, the reporter, an advisor and that was about it and um, it was just complete silence on the streets uh, it was it was eerie it was really eerie um, and if you think about it lockdown too as people have called this kind of pre Christmas period it uh, hasn't been the same because it, has, it, it, it just hasn't been the same in terms of the composition. So if you think about it, in, back in March, you had to stay within two kilometers of your home. There weren't really many exceptions other than very essential stuff. There was no one in city centers, nor meant to be in a city center, unless they were there for the most um, particular and essential reason. I always think that lockdown affected everybody. But it didn't affect everybody in the same way. So I don't believe there's anybody in our country, probably anybody in our world, um, who hasn't been impacted by COVID-19. We all have, um, in all different ways. We all have our own worries, our own challenges, our own struggles. The impact of lockdown on each and every one of us is different, and that's one of the reasons why. And you know, people sometimes kind of get a bit mocked for it and stuff. But I mean, one of the reasons why I was trying to communicate a lot with people and talk to people and as far as you can in the middle of a pandemic, motivate people to pull together and to get through this and to look out for each other and to be kind to each other, was that I was very conscious and still am to this day that not everyone's home is a safe place Um, and that we're not, and that we're all fragile, that we all have a fragility. And I think COVID really um, really stressed and tested both of those things. Like, you know, because I know there were lots of people Bacon, banana bread and bacon sourdough, and look, we were all doing everything we possibly could to get through you know, a time when we couldn't really leave our homes. Uh, and that was great to see people kind of trying new things and entertaining each other in Zoom quizzes and stuff. But I was also very conscious that behind that veneer of people doing their best, minding each other, um, that there was real pain um, and real hurt. And that every time we made a decision there was a real human impact. These weren't kind of abstract decisions, there was an immediacy to it. You were deciding tonight that tomorrow I can't go to work. And look, of course, when I get into the politics of it, we obviously had to do a number of other things to make sure people could keep food on the table and a roof over their head, be it social welfare payments, uh, bans on evictions, those sort of things. Um, And that was an important part of it, actually, because you needed to try and keep the social fabric of our country together if you were to get everybody to pull together.
2: And as we moved through March and April, <clears throat> the reality of this was that we were losing dozens of our own people every day. Yeah. And I remember even as a reporter thinking, God, if five people died in one day on any other story, it would be the biggest story that year. And we would talk about it for weeks, it would be the lead story for weeks. And it just started to become like kind of normal, which was really gross, actually. and. I found that quite like shocking for you as well. I mean, in your position seeing the numbers coming in every day, they weren't just numbers, they were families that were going on to plan very pared back goodbyes to people that really mattered to them.
1: Yeah, they did and and and, and I think I think the media in this country did a, a superb job at reminding people of that fact because numbers and statistics were being produced every night. But they weren't numbers and statistics. They weren't numbers and statistics. They were our friends and our family who couldn't grieve, and they weren't they weren't nameless people, and they weren't faceless people, and and I still think we're going to have to come back to this as a country. I still think our country has gone through a very traumatic time. Um, you know, put aside the fact that generally people think Ireland did its best, and I think that's a fair comment. I think certainly from my experience, everyone in this country be an individual citizen or a person in authority like Tony Hula and everyone did their best and pulled together. But parking that, there's huge trauma and you know if you exactly as you say, if you think of that like 5 deaths, 10 deaths, 15 deaths a day, a funeral with a closed coffin, a funeral where you had to decide which members of the family could go, I mean just simply horrific. Again, I think, I think we saw great kindness from people in our country. Um, I know, for example, the Hospice Foundation and others came together and set up a bereavement helpline and kind of extra resources and supports to help people grieve. But I, I think at the end of all of this, and God willing, the end is soon, I think at the end of all of this, we need to look at how we stop and remember together and grieve together um, for the loss of thousands of our people um, from this awful virus. Yeah. I, I did, there, was, there was a bit of the commentary, I must say, that I didn't like at all during the pandemic, which was the reference to how many people have died every day and how many of those people have an underlying health condition. And I don't think it was in any way intentional. In fact, sorry, I know it wasn't in any way intentional. But, but as though almost to say, well, they had an underlying health condition, they were sick anyway. And that just used to stick in my craw when I used to hear X number of people are sick today, but Y number of them had an underlying health condition. As, as though somehow or other that, that was less important that they'd gotten sick. That wasn't the point, I know, of the commentary. Um, but I, but I, do, I do think it must have caused hurt and pain and possibly offence to, to some of those families. Um, because a lot, of people, a lot of people who passed away with COVID did have underlying health conditions. Um, but it was our duty, our collective duty as a people, was to protect them and mind them. Um, and, and in fact, even a more important duty when they were already medically vulnerable, Um, so I don't think we should forget that.
2: And uh, we spoke to An Undertaker as part of the documentary as well and he was talking about um, just, I suppose, it is part of our culture, isn't it? We're still into big funerals as a -hmm. a country. Mm -hmm. Do you think that we're forever changed or do you think when some semblance of normal life comes back that we'll go back to that or do you think this has kind of changed us?
1: Oh, I I hope we go back to it. I mean, I I think, I actually think we'll appreciate the things that we perhaps took for granted. Um, And I don't mean that in a flippant way about grief but the idea that in Ireland we generally do grief well, um, that we do come together as a community, that we have the week, that we have the get together, that we remember the person over a, over a pint or a, a glass or something, that we tell stories, that we hug each other, I think it's innately who we are. Um, and I think if anything, there's a, a longing um, to get back to that point. I mean, I think one of the big things that has changed in our country, is now an appreciation for so many of the things that we never even stopped to think about. Um, I I mean, that's that's one of the changes that it's had on me, is that actually the simple things, the small things, the little things, the things we took for granted, the people we took for granted, um, I think COVID has made us stop and think about all of that again. Like, I, I don't think, if something good is to come of this pandemic, I think it'll be in that space that we're beginning to, I hope, individually and collectively reassess what does a good life look like? What's success? Um, my mum used to always say success is like in what you do and it's kind, of, it's kind of true you know I mean success is it's about your family, it's about your community, it's about your sense of belonging um, and, and I, I think Covid has done that. I also think, I also hope it's made us appreciate other people that we take for granted like we were all saying stay at home to keep yourself safe, stay at home to keep your family safe. What about all the people who didn't stay at home? because they couldn't and, I, and I'm not just talking about the amazing people in the health service because we rightly acknowledge them all of the time but I'm also talking about the bin men the postmen I tell this story but I, I, I just think it's such a good example of what an amazing country this is postmen and women at the start of this pandemic came to us and said we know where the older people live we know where the vulnerable people live we call to their houses every day dropping off the letters. how can we help and they offered. They didn't ask for a change of terms and conditions, nothing. Just out of sheer kindness, they offered to knock in on, call in on, in a socially distanced, safe way. You know, the older person living in the community to see if they needed a prescription picked up in the pharmacy or a few messages dropped in. I mean, that's who we are. Um, So all of those people that perhaps we've taken for granted for years, um, I hope we'll stop and never do that again.
0: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping.
2: I want to move on to nursing homes because obviously we know that they were severely impacted Um, again at what stage did you kind of realise things in nursing homes were were really serious and that they were going to need a lot more help
1: so I can't put a specific date on it but it became very clear very quickly um, that our nursing homes were were in a very bad way and I want to just I'm going to just be careful what I say here because I know of many, many, many really good nursing homes. People who did everything right, for want of a better phrase. People who followed all the infection control guidelines, people who looked after their staff, people who looked after their residents, and COVID still got in. So I wouldn't like any of my comments to be seen as critical of people doing their best out there. Um, because this is a highly, highly, highly infectious virus and if it gets in, it's almost impossible to keep it out. Now, I think every day, and I probably will think every day for the rest of my life, could we have kept the virus out? How did you keep the virus out? How could you have kept the virus out of nursing homes? And and people would say to me, and these are fair comments, people would say, well, if we could have tested everybody in the nursing homes earlier, um, that would have helped. I absolutely believe that. But you have to also remember, we lived in a country, and we weren't alone in this, as a country that didn't have the infrastructure to do that. Um, People like Paul Reid moved mountains, I mean, mountains, to get PPE to private nursing homes. And again, I don't mean this about public versus private, but to private nursing homes that the HSE never had had a history of needing to provide things for, because they were private nursing homes. But being honest, and again, I don't say this in a critical way about nursing homes. What I've learned from this, though, And some people might say we should have learned it before, and maybe that's a fair comment. The model of how we care for older people is broken. It is broken. Like, I'm not saying that in a highly critical way of people who work their backside off every day to mind people, to care for people, and do do it with such dignity, um, and who risk their own health every day going to work. So I don't say that in any sort of critical way of them. But the idea that we build large buildings For you or I to move into because we've reached a certain age or a certain level of care rather than actually saying well Simon how do we keep you in your community how do we put the supports around you in your community without getting into a big long health policy discussion and that's what when we talk about slainter care and reforming the health service that's what it has to be about there are some countries that haven't built nursing homes or certainly not many in a very long number of years because there'll always be a place for nursing homes but this idea that care of the elderly is predominantly provided for in nursing homes and then the second thing that I think is, 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 is a very serious shortcoming in our system is the lack of linkages between the nursing home sector and the health service and what I would say to people is I really hope the linkages that have now been formed um, they need to become part of the health service they, they can't just be a temporary intervention never again can they disappear um, and then look there's real issues with staffing and um, there's issues with In my own view, there's issues with the pay and terms and conditions for staff in nursing homes. I think that needs to be addressed. But there's also issues with, you know, there's a certain number of healthcare assistants, a certain number of nurses. The HSC wants to hire some, the nursing home wants to hire some, and you're still you're still drawing from the same pool of people. So I think there are big issues. I think there are big issues about how we care for older people. But, but I also took it upon myself to. To, to FaceTime residents in nursing homes. Because everyone was, talk- what was what was really annoying me as Minister, being honest, was everyone was talking about nursing homes. So you guys were rightly reporting on nursing homes, not. I was being asked about nursing homes. We were meeting nursing home representative bodies, people who own nursing homes, but no one was talking to the people in the nursing homes. So I wanted to get a sense from them as to how they felt. So I remember um, FaceTiming residents in about, I'm gonna say six or seven different nursing homes across the country and getting to talk directly to them and what was very clear was a couple of things I mean one a resilience you know I remember talking to one woman who'd lived through the Spanish flu and now she was living through Covid I think she was over 100 her husband was or I think she called him her toy boy in his 90s Um, you know and I remember chatting to her and I remember her very her very kind of -of matter-of-fact nature you know because she She'd lived through the Spanish flu. She'd lived through hard times and she want, She knew Ireland was going to get through this. I remember talking to a woman who started crying to me um, on FaceTime because she was so lonely. And I remember her daughter had come to the window of the nursing home and, you know, they'd talk through the window and I think the daughter, this woman had a, a sweet tooth and the daughter would leave some some treats there and they'd bring them in. and You know, like I'm, what age am I? I'm 34. You know, when you... Tell someone of our age that you know the next year of your life is going to kind of be disrupted or somewhat put on hold that 's one thing when you tell someone in their 80s or their 90s that they 're being cut off from their family for months and months and months um, that can be really concerning for a whole lot of obvious reasons so uh, so I used to think it was important to hear directly um, to, directly from them but I just have to say, I mean, a highly infectious virus we see every year with the flu, it's almost impossible to keep it out of congregated settings. And that was again, back to why all of us as a people needed to do everything we could to get the virus down because the lower we got the numbers in the community, the less likely it would be that the virus would spread. But again, I remember people like Tony, Tony Ulan being criticized for want of a better word, for kind of, you know, why didn't you bring in visitor restrictions earlier? And, you know, I fully support him 110% in his decision because, one, he was following the evidence, and I think the evidence is quite clear that he made the right call. But secondly, he was also conscious, as we all should be, of the human impact of telling somebody in their 80s or 90s, or someone with dementia, taking away their support structure and leaving them in very good care but isolated from their loved ones. I mean these were the these were the really difficult decisions that had to be made on a daily basis.
2: One of the key questions I suppose in terms of nursing homes though was when nursing homes asked for help did it come quick enough?
1: And I think that's I think that's a fair point for all of us to reflect on. My honest sense is that the Department of Health the HSC did everything humanly possible to support nursing homes. But was it quick enough? Sorry, sorry, no, that's a fair point. And they did everything they possibly could to support them as quickly as they possibly could. But back to my original point, would it have been much better to be able to test people quicker working in nursing homes? Without doubt, without doubt. But we didn't have the testing facilities built up. So they, they had to build testing facilities that never existed before for a virus that we didn't know of before. And the moment they got to a point where they had that capacity, they started doing the what they call serial testing programmes. And that has, that has I believe, saved lives. Would would I dearly love that we could have done that months earlier? Absolutely. Um, do I believe that it was possible to do it? No, I don't.
2: And so, in the middle of all of this then, we had a change of government. Um, which had to happen. It was pending for a long time. Was it difficult for you to step back from being the health minister or were you sort of ready at that stage after a long couple of months or how did you feel about that?
1: I was resigned to the fact that I wasn't going to be the health minister and in normal political times you're meant to be delighted apparently if you're no longer going to be the health minister because, you know, people make pejorative comments about how difficult a job it is. You're always in the firing line. You make mistakes. I made loads. And you'd imagine after four years you know, getting to the exit and getting out should be a sense of great relief, and I'm sure in normal circumstances it might be. I felt a real sense of loss, actually, um, that again, perhaps I didn't realise I was going to feel. And um, I, I not not personal loss. I I don't mean it like that at all. But just just connections. Like I deeply care for the people in the Department of Health now that I've been working on with this. You know, I I don't i don't see them in the normal kind of minister official working relationship you'd have i i, I you know I, I i take a bullet for them i know how dedicated they are i know how exhausted they are and um, i know the sacrifices that they've made and i know their names and many of the irish people don't you know they know the names of tony hula and, and ronan Glynn and a few others i know the the near army of people working behind them and um, to make sure Tony Huland can do his press conference every evening, to make sure Ronan is ready. You know, they're also, you know, people that deserve our thanks and gratitude. And I also felt, I just felt, and it probably sounds like a stupid thing for a politician to say, but it it is true. I mean, I just felt a connection with people. because it was different like I wasn't the minister chatting to the public and trying to convince them that some policy of my party was the right idea or whatever like it wasn't normal politics I was just genuinely trying to authentically truthfully talk to people human to human person to person about what was going on and and very interestingly they started talking back to me so I I used to get I mean a crazy amount of and I say that affectionately I was honoured and delighted to get it but a massive amount of um, correspondence letters cards mass cards you know little gifts to keep you going like you know messages from people across the country saying so you're looking a bit tired keep your, keep going messages from children and they really stuck with me actually kids writing to me like thousands of children writing to me and you know telling me their views on COVID and asking me about COVID and asking me to explain to them why they couldn't see their granny or also telling me look they knew why they couldn't see their granny and here's what they were doing instead to make sure their granny didn't feel alone and yeah, I just felt so privileged um, to be in that position, to be an interlocutor, an interface, if you like, for people in this country with this pandemic and how we were dealing with it. And then when yeah, it comes to a sudden stop and, it's, and the pandemic is sadly still there and you're not, it feels different. But, but you know, we are in good hands and um, we have incredible people uh, working so hard for us. No country in the world can possibly get everything in a pandemic right. Ireland didn't and um, when people sit down to write the, the history or the review and there should be reviews and all of these things as to how Ireland handled the pandemic so we can be ready for the next one and sadly there will be another one um, people will find things that we did well and things that we could have done better but what I will always know always know is that it was never ever for a lack of effort um, or sincerity or hard work on the part of um, officials in the department, people in the HSE, frontline workers, you know, uh, th- th- they left nothing behind, they left nothing in the dressing room, they did everything possible and I, I'm very proud of them all. I think that's it. Thank you. Thanks so much for your time.